This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Outliers, The Story of Success by Malcolm Gladwell. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 5 The Three Lessons of Joe Flom. Joe Flom is the last living named partner of the law firm Skadden, Arps, Slate, Mager, and Flom. He has a corner office high atop the Condé Nast Tower in Manhattan. He is short and slightly hunched. His head is large, framed by large prominent ears, and his narrow blue eyes are hidden by oversized aviator-style glasses. He is slender now, but during his heyday, Flom was extremely overweight. He waddles when he walks. He doodles when he thinks. He mumbles when he talks, and when he made his way down the halls of Skadden, Arps, conversations dropped to a hush. Flom grew up in the Depression in Brooklyn's Borough Park neighborhood. His parents were Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe. His father, Isidore, was a union organizer in the garment industry, who later went to work sewing shoulder pads for ladies' dresses. His mother worked at what was called piecework, doing applique at home. They were desperately poor. His family moved nearly every year when he was growing up because the custom in those days was for landlords to give new tenants a month's free rent, and without that, his family could not get by. In junior high school, Flom took the entrance exam for the elite Townsend Harris Public High School on Lexington Avenue in Manhattan, a school that in just 40 years of existence produced three Nobel Prize winners, six Pulitzer Prize winners, and one Supreme Court justice, not to mention George Gershwin and Jonas Salk the inventor of the polio vaccine, and he got in. His mother would give him a dime in the morning for breakfast, three donuts, orange juice, and coffee at Nettick's. After school, he pushed a hand truck in the garment district. He did two years of night school at City College in Upper Manhattan, working during the days to make ends meet. Signed up for the Army, served his time, and applied to Harvard Law School. Flom says, quote, I wanted to get into the law since I was six years old. But he didn't have a degree in college, but Harvard took him anyways. Why? I wrote them a letter on why I was the answer to sliced bread. As Flom explains it, with characteristic brevity, at Harvard in the late 1940s, he never took notes. All of us were going through this first year of idiocy of writing notes carefully in the classroom and doing an outline of that, then a condensation of that, and then doing it again on onion skin paper, on top of other paper. Remember, remembers Charles Haar, who was a classmate of Flom's. It was, a root, it was a routinized way of trying to learn the cases. Not Joe. He wouldn't have any of that, but he had that quality which we always vaguely subsumed under thinking like a lawyer. He had the great capacity for judgment. Flom was, end quote, Flom was, late, was named to the law review, an honor reserved for the very top students in the class. During hiring season, the Christmas break of his second year, he went down to New York to interview with the big corporate law firms of the day. Flom remembers, quote, I was ungainly and awkward and a fat kid. I didn't feel comfortable. I was one of two kids in my class at the end of hiring season who didn't have a job. Then one day, one of my professors said that there are these guys starting a firm. I had a visit with them, and the entire time I met with them, they were telling me what the risks were of going with a firm that didn't have a client. The more they talked, the more I liked them. So I said, what the hell, I'll take a chance. They had to scrape together the 3600 a year, which was the starting salary, end quote. In the beginning, it was just Marshall Skadden, Leslie Arps, both of whom had just been turned down for partner at a major Wall Street law firm, 
and John Slate, who had worked for Pan Am Airlines. Flom was their associate. They had a tiny suite of offices on the top floor of the Lehman Brothers building on Wall Street. What kind of law did we do, Flom says? Whatever came in the door. In 1954, Flom took over Skadden's managing partner, and the firm began to grow by leaps and bounds. Soon it had 100 lawyers, then 200. When it hit 300, one of Flom's partners, Morris Kramer, came to him and said that he felt guilty about bringing in young law school graduates. Skadden was so big, Kramer said, that it was hard to imagine the firm growing beyond that and being able to promote any of those hires. Flom told him, ah, no, we'll go to 1,000. Flom never lacked for ambition. Today, Skadden Arps has nearly 2,000 attorneys in 23 offices around the world and earns over well, well over $1 billion a year, making it one of the largest and most powerful law firms in the world. In his office, Flom has pictures of himself with George Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton. He lives in a sprawling apartment in a luxurious building on Manhattan's Upper East Side. For a period of almost 30 years, if you were a Fortune 500 company about to be taken over, or trying to take over someone else, or merely a big shot in some kind of fix, Joseph Flom has been your eternity, has your been your attorney, and Skadden Arps has been your law firm. And if they weren't, you probably wished that they were. Section 2. I hope by now that you are skeptical of this kind of story. You know, brilliant immigrant kid overcomes poverty and the depression, can't get a job at the stuffy downtown law firms, makes it on his own through sheer hustle and ability. It's a rags-to-riches story, and everything we've learned so far about hockey players and software billionaires and the termites suggests that success doesn't happen that way. Successful people don't do it alone. Where they come from matters. They are products of particular places and environments. Just as we did then with Bill Joy and Chris Langan, let's start over with Joseph Flom, this time putting to use everything we've learned from the first four chapters of this book. No more talk of Joe Flom's intelligence or personality or ambition, though he obviously has these three things in abundance. No glowing quotations from his clients testifying to his genius. No more colorful tales from the meteoric rise of Skadden, Arps, Slate, Mager, and Flom. Instead, I'm going to tell a series of stories from the New York immigrant world that Joe Flom grew up in of a fellow law student, a father and son named Maurice and Mark Janklow, and an extraordinary couple by the name of Louis, Louis and Regina Borgenicht, in the hopes of answering a critical question. What were Joe Flom's opportunities? Since we know that outliers always have help along the way, we can sort through the ecology of Joe Flom and identify the conditions that helped create him. We tell rags-to-riches stories because we find something captivating in the idea of a lone hero battling overwhelming odds. But the true story of Joe Flom's life turns out to be much more intriguing than the mythological version because all the things in his life that seem to have been disadvantages, that he was a poor child of garment workers, that he was Jewish at a time when Jews were heavily discriminated against, that he grew up in the Depression, all these turn out, unexpectedly, to have been advantages. Joe Flom is an outlier, but he's not an outlier for the reasons you might think, and the story of his rise provides a blueprint for understanding success in his profession. By the end of the chapter, in fact, we will see that it is possible to take the lessons of Joe Flom, apply them to the legal world of New York City, and predict the family background, age, and origin of the city's most powerful attorneys without knowing a single additional fact about them. But we're getting ahead of ourselves.
Section three, lesson number one, the importance of being Jewish. One of Joe Flom's classmates at Harvard Law School was a man named Alexander Bickel. Like Flom, Bickel was the son of Eastern European Jewish immigrants who lived in the Bronx. Like Flom, Bickel had gone to public school in New York and then to City College. Like Flom, Bickel was a star in his law school class. In fact, before his career was cut short by cancer, Bickel would become perhaps the finest constitutional scholar of his generation. And like Flom and the rest of their law school classmates, Bickel went to Manhattan during hiring season over Christmas of 1947 to find himself a job. His first stop was at Mudgy Rose down on Wall Street, as traditional and stuffy as any firm of that era. Mudge Rose was founded in 1869. It was where Richard Nixon practiced in the years before he won the presidency in 1968. Quote, We're like the lady who only wants her name in the newspaper twice, when she's born and when she dies. End quote from one of the senior partners. Bickel was taken around the firm and interviewed by one partner after another until he was led into the library to meet with the firm's senior partner. You can imagine the scene a dark paneled room, an artfully frayed Persian carpet, row upon row of leather bound legal volumes, oil paintings of Mr. Mudge and Mr. Rose on the wall. Bickel said years later, quote, After they put me through the whole interview and everything, I was brought to the senior partner who took it upon himself to tell me that for a boy of my antecedents, and you can imagine how Bickel must have paused before repeating the euphemism for his immigrant background, I certainly had come far. But I ought to understand how limited the possibilities of a firm like his were to hire a boy of my antecedents. And while he congratulated me on my progress, I should, cert I should understand he certainly couldn't offer me a job. But they all enjoyed seeing me and all that. End quote. It is clear from the transcript, transcript of Bickle's reminiscences that his interviewer does not know quite what to do with that information. Bickle was, by the time of the interview, at the height of his reputation. He had argued a case before the Supreme Court. He had written brilliant books. Mudge Rose saying no to Bickle because of his antecedents was like the Chicago Bulls turning down Michael Jordan because they were uncomfortable with a black kid from North Carolina. It didn't make any sense. The interviewer asked, meaning, quote, but for stars, wouldn't they have made an exception for you? To which Bickle replied, stars, schmars, end quote. In the 1940s and 50s, the old line law firms of New York operated like a private club. They were all headquartered in downtown Manhattan, in and around Wall Street, in somber, granite faced buildings. The partners at the top firms graduated from the same Ivy League schools, attended the same churches, and summered in the same oceanside towns on Long Island. They wore conservative gray suits. Their partnerships were known as white shoe firms, in apparent reference to the white bucks favored at the country club or a cocktail party, and they were very particular in whom they hired. As Erwin Smeagol wrote in The Wall Street Lawyer, his study of the New York legal establishment of that era, they were looking for, quote, lawyers who are Nordic, have pleasing personalities and clean cut appearances, are graduates of the right schools, have the right social background and experience in the affairs of the world, and are endowed with tremendous stamina. A former law school dean, in discussing the qualities students need to obtain a job, offers a somewhat more realistic picture. To get a job, students should be long enough on family connections, long enough on ability, or long enough on personality, or a combination of these. Something called acceptability is made up of the sum of its parts. 
If any man has, if a man has any of these, he could get a job. If he has two of them, he can have a choice of jobs. If he has three, he could go anywhere. End quote. Bickle's hair was not fair. His eyes were not blue. He spoke with an accent, and his family connections, connections consisted, principally, of being the son of Solomon and Yetta Bickle of Bucharest, Romania, by way, most recently, of Brooklyn. Flom's credentials were no better. He says he felt uncomfortable when he went for his interviews downtown, and of course he did. He was short and ungainly and Jewish and talked with the flat, nasal tones of his native Brooklyn. And you can imagine how he would have been perceived by some silver-haired patrician in the library. If you were not of the right background in religion and social class, and you came out of law school in that era, you joined a smaller, second-rate, upstart law firm on a rung below the big names downtown. Or you simply went into business for yourself and took whatever came in the door. That is, whatever legal work the big downtown firms did not want for themselves. This seems horribly unfair, and it was. But, as is so often the case with outliers, buried in that setback was a golden opportunity. Section 4. The old line Wall Street firms had a very specific idea about what it was that they did. They were corporate lawyers. They represented the country's largest and most prestigious companies. And represented meant they handled the taxes and the legal work behind the issuing of stocks and bonds and made sure their clients did not run afoul of federal regulators. They did not do litigation, that is, very few of them had a division dedicated to defending and filing lawsuits. As Paul Kravath, one of the founders of Kravath, Swain, and Moore, the very whitest of the white shoe firms, once put it, the lawyer's job was to settle disputes in the conference room, not in the courtroom. Quote, Among my classmates at Harvard, Harvard, the thing that bright young guys did was securities work or tax, said another white shoe partner. Those were the distinguished fields. Litigation was for harms, or for hams, not for serious people. Corporations just didn't sue each other in those days. What the, end quote. What the old line firms also did not do was involve themselves in hostile corporate takeovers. It's hard to imagine today when corporate raiders and private equity firms are constantly swallowing up one company after another. But until the 1970s, it was considered scandalous for one company to buy another company without the target agreeing to be bought. Places like Mudge Rose and the other establishment firms on Wall Street would not touch those kinds of deals. Quote, The problem with hostile takeovers is that they were hostile, says Stephen Brill, who founded, the, who founded the trade magazine American Lawyer. It wasn't gentlemanly. If your best buddy from Princeton is the CEO of Company X, and he's been coasting for a long time, and some corporate raider shows up and says this company sucks, it makes you uncomfortable. You think, if he goes, then maybe I go too. It's the whole notion of not upsetting the basic calm and stable order of things, end quote. The work that came from next door, or came in the door, to the generation of Jewish lawyers from the Bronx and Brooklyn in the 50s and 60s was the work that the white shoe firms disdained, litigation, and more important, proxy fights, which were legal maneuvers at the center of any hostile takeover bid. An investor would take an interest in a company, he would denounce the management as incompetent and send letters to the shareholders, trying to get them to give him their proxy so he could vote out the firm's executives. And to run to pr the proxy fight, the only lawyer the investors could get was someone like Joe Flom. In Skadden, the legal historian Lincoln Kaplan describes the early world of takeovers. Quote, 
The winner of a proxy contest was determined in the snake pit, or officially called the counting room. Lawyers for each side met with inspectors of elections, whose job it was to approve or eliminate questionable proxies. The event was often informal, contentious, and unruly. Adver adversaries were sometimes in t-shirts, eating watermelon or sharing a bottle of scotch. In rare cases, the results of the snake pit could swing the outcome of a contest and turn on a single ballot. Lawyers occasionally tried to fix an election by engineering the appointment of inspectors who were beholden to them. Inspectors commonly smoked cigars provided by each side. Management's lawyer would contest the proxies of the insurgents, saying, I challenge this, and vice versa. Lawyers who prevailed in the snake pit excelled at winging it. There were lawyers who knew more about the rules of proxy contests, but no one was better in a fight than Joe Flom. Flom was fat, a hundred pounds overweight then, said one lawyer, physically unattractive, a partner said he resembled a frog, and indifferent to social niceties. He would fart in public or jab a cigar close to the face of someone he was talking to, without apology. But in the judgment of colleagues and some adversaries, his will to win was unsurpassed, and he was often masterful. End quote. The white shoe law firms would call in Flom as well whenever some corporate raider made a run at one of their establishment clients. They wouldn't touch the case, but they were happy to outsource it to Adden and Scarps, or Scadden and Arps. Quote, Flom's early specialty was proxy fights, and that was not what we did, just like we didn't do matrimonial work, said Robert Rifkind, a longtime partner at Kravath, Swain, and Moore. And therefore, we purported not to know about it. I remember once we had an issue involving a proxy fight, and one of my senior corporate partners said, well, let's get Joe in. He came to the conference room, and we all sat around and described the problem, and he told us what to do and left. And I said, we, we can do that, you know. And the partner said, no, 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 you can't. We're not going to do that. And it was just that we didn't do it, end quote. Then came the 1970s. The old aversion to lawsuits fell by the wayside. It became easier to borrow money. Federal regulations were relaxed. Markets became internationalized. Investors became more aggressive, and the result was a boom in the number and size of corporate takeovers. Quote, in 1980, if you went to the Business Roundtable, the Association of Major American Corporate Executives, and took surveys about whether hostile takeovers should be allowed, two-thirds would have said no, says Flom. Now, the vote would, almost unanimous, would be almost unanimously yes, end quote. Companies needed to be defended against lawsuits from rivals. Hostile suitors needed to be beaten back. Investors who wanted to devour unwilling targets needed help with their legal strategy, and shareholders needed formal representation. The dollar figures involved were enormous. From the mid-1970s to the end of the 1980s, the amount of money involved in mergers and acquisitions every year on Wall Street increased 2,000%, peaking at almost a quarter of a trillion dollars. All of a sudden, the things that the old line law firms didn't want to do, hostile takeovers and litigation, were the things that every law firm wanted to do. And who was the expert in, those, in these two suddenly critical areas of law? The once marginal, second tier law firms started by the people who couldn't get jobs at the downtown firms 10 and 15 years earlier. Quote from Flom, the white shoe firms thought hostile takeovers were beneath contempt until relatively late in the game. And until they decided that, hey, maybe we ought to be in that business, they left me alone. And once you get the reputation for doing that kind of work, the business comes to you first. End quote.
Think of how similar this is to the stories of Bill Joy and Bill Gates. Both of them toiled away in a relatively obscure field without any great hopes for worldly success. And then boom, the personal computer revolution happened and they had their 10,000 hours in. They were ready. Flom had the same experience. For 20 years, he perfected his craft at Skadden and Arps. Then the world changed and he was ready. He didn't triumph over adversity. Instead, what started out as adversity ended up being an opportunity. Quote, It's not that those guys were smarter lawyers than anyone else, says Rifkind. It's that they had a skill that they had been working on for years that was suddenly very valuable. End quote. Footnote. The best analysis of how adversity turned into opportunity for Jewish lawyers has been done by this legal scholar Eli Vald. Vald is careful to make the point, though, that make the point that Flom and his ilk weren't merely lucky. Lucky is winning the lottery. They were given an opportunity and they seized it. As Vald says, Jewish lawyers were lucky and they helped themselves. That's the best way to put it. They took advantage of the circumstances that came their way. The lucky part was the unwillingness of the WASP firms to step into takeover law. But that word luck fails to capture the work and the efforts and the imagination in the acting on opportunities that might have been hidden and not so obvious. Section 5. Lesson number 2. Demographic luck. Maurice Janklo enrolled in Brooklyn Law School in 1919. He was the eldest son of Jewish immigrants from Romania. He had seven brothers and sisters. One ended up running a small department store in Brooklyn. Two others were in the haberdashery business. One had a graphic design studio. Another made feather hats. And another worked in the finance department at Tishman Realty. Maurice, however, was the family intellectual, the only one to go to college. He got his law degree and set up a practice on Court Street in downtown Brooklyn. He was an elegant man who dressed in a Humburg and Brooks Brothers suits. In the summer, he wore a straw boater hat. He married the very beautiful Lillian Levantin, who was the daughter of a prominent Talmudist. He drove a big car, and he moved to Queens. He and a partner then took over the writing paper business that gave every indication of making a fortune. Here was a man who looked for all the world like the kind of person who should thrive as a lawyer in New York City. He was intelligent and educated. He came from a family well-schooled in the rules of the system. He was living in the most economically vibrant city in the world. But here is the strange thing. It never happened. Maurice Janklow's career did not take off the way he'd hoped. In his mind, he never really made it beyond Court Street in Brooklyn. He struggled and floundered. Maurice Janklow had a son named Mort, however, who became a lawyer as well. And the son's story is very different from that of the father. Mort Janklow built a law firm from scratch in the 1960s, then put together one of the very earliest cable television franchises and sold it for a fortune to Cox Broadcasting. He started a literary agency in the 1970s, and it is today one of the most prestigious in the world. He has his own private plane. Every dream that eluded the father was fulfilled by the son. Why did Mort Janklow succeed where Maurice Janklow did not? There are, of course, a hundred potential answers to that question, but let's take a page from the analysis of the business tycoons born in the 1830s and the software programmers born in 1955 and look at the differences between the two Janklows in terms of their generation. Is there a perfect time for a New York Jewish lawyer to be born? 
It turns out there is. And the same fact of help that helps explain Mark Janklow's success is the second key to Joe Flom's success as well. Section 6. Lewis Terman's genius study, as you all re will recall from the chapter about Chris Langan, was an investigation into how some people or some children with really high IQs who were born between 1903 and 1970, how they turned out as adults. And the study found that there was a group of real successes and there was a group of real failures, and that the successes were far more likely to have come from wealthier families. In that sense, the Terman study underscores the argument Annette Leroux makes that what your parents do for a living and the assumptions that accompany the class your parents belong to matter. There's another way to break down the Terman results, though, and that's by when the termites were born. If you divide the termites into two groups, with those born between 1903 and 1911 on one side and those between 1912 and 1917 on the other, it turns out that the Terman failures are far more likely to have been born in the earlier group. The explanation has to do with two of the greatest cataclysmic events of the 20th century, the Great Depression and World War II. If you were born after 1912, say in 1915, you got out of college after the worst of the depression and you were drafted at a young age, you were drafted at a young enough age that going away to war for three or four years was as much an opportunity as it was a disruption, provided you weren't killed, of course. The termites born before 1911, though, graduated from college at the height of the Depression when job opportunities were scarce and they were already in their late 30s when the Second World War hit, meaning that when they were drafted, they had to disrupt careers and families and adult lives that were already well underway. To have been born before 1911 is to have been demographically unlucky. The most devastating events of the 20th century hit you at exactly the wrong time. This same demographic logic applies to Jewish lawyers in New York, like Maurice Janklow. The doors were closed to them at the big downtown law firms, so they were overwhelmingly solo practitioners, handling wills and divorces and contracts and minor disputes. And in the Depression, the work of the solo practitioner has all but disappeared. Quote, nearly half of the members of the Metropolitan Bar earned less than the minimum subsistence level for American families, writes Gerald Auerbach of the Depression years in New York. One year later, 1,500 lawyers were prepared to take the pauper's oath to qualify for work relief. Jewish lawyers, approximately one half of the Metropolitan Bar, discovered that their practice had become a dignified road to starvation, end quote. Regardless of the number of years they had spent in practice, their income was strikingly less than that of their Christian colleagues. Maurice Janklow was born in 1902. When the Depression started, he was newly married and had just bought his big car, moved to Queens, and had made his great gamble on the writing paper business. His timing could not have been worse. Mort Janklow says, quote, He was going to make a fortune, but the Depression killed him economically. He didn't have any reserves and had no family to fall back on. And from then on, he became very much a Scrivener-type lawyer. He didn't have the courage to take risks after that. It was too much for him. My father used to close titles for $25. He had a friend who worked at the Jamaica Savings Bank who would throw him some business. He would kill himself for 25 bucks, doing the whole closing and title reports for 25 bucks. Janklo continues, I can remember my father and mother in the morning. He would say to her, I got $1.75. I need 10 cents for the bus, 
10 cents for the subway and a quarter for the sandwich, and he would give her the rest. They were that close to the edge. Section 7. Now, contrast that experience with the experience of someone who, like Mort Janklow, was born in the 1930s. Take a look at the following chart, which shows the birth rates in the U.S. from 1910 to 1950. In 1915, there were almost 3 billion or 3 million babies. In 1935, that number dropped by almost 600,000. And then, within a decade and a half, the number is back over 3 million again. To put it in more precise terms, for every 1,000 Americans, there were 29.5 babies born in 1915, 18.7 babies born in 1935, and 24.1 babies born in 1950. The decade of the 1930s is what is called a demographic trough. In response to the economic hardship of the Depression, families simply stopped having children, and as a result, the generation born during that decade was markedly smaller than both the generation that preceded it and the generation that immediately followed it. Here's what the economist H. Scott Gordon once wrote about the particular benefits of being one of those people born in the small generation. Quote, When he opens his eyes for the first time, it is in a spacious hospital, well appointed to serve the wave that preceded him. The staff is generous with their time, since they have little to do while they write out the brief period of calm until the next wave hits. When he comes to school age, the magnificent buildings are already there to receive him. The ample staff of teachers welcomes him with open arms. In high school, the basketball team is not as good as it was, but there is no problem getting time on the gymnasium floor. The university is a delightful place. Lots of room in the classes and residences, no crowding in the cafeteria, and the professors are solicitous. Then he hits the job market. The supply of new entrants is low, and the demand is high, because there is a large wave coming behind him, providing a strong demand for the goods and services of his potential employers. End quote. In New York City, the early 1930s cohort was so small that class sizes were at least half of what they had been 25 earlier. The schools were new, built for the big generation that had come before, and the teachers had what in the Depression was considered a high-status job. The New, York's, quote, the New York City public schools of the 1940s were considered the best schools in the country, says Diane Ravitch, a professor at the New York University, who has written widely on the city's educational history. There was this generation of educators in the 30s and 40s who would have been in another time and place college professors. They were brilliant, but they couldn't get the jobs they wanted, and public teaching was what they did because it was security, and it had a pension, and you didn't get laid off. End quote. The same dynamic benefited the members of that generation when they went off to college. Here is Ted Friedman, one of the top litigators in New York in the 1970s and 1980s. Like Flom, he grew up poor, the child of struggling Jewish immigrants. Quote, my opinion were city college, my options were city college and the University of Michigan. Friedman said, city college was free. And Michigan, then as now, was one of the top universities in the U.S., $450 a year. And the thing was, after the first year, you could get a scholarship if your grades were high. So it was only the first year I had to pay for, if I did well. Friedman's first inclination was to stay in New York. Well, I went to City College for one day, and I didn't like it. I thought, this is going to be four more years of Bronx Science, his high school. So I came home packed my bags, and hitchhiked to Ann Arbor. 
He went on, I had a couple of hundred dollars in my pocket from the summer. I was working the Catskills to make enough money to pay the $450 tuition, and I had some left over. Then there was this fancy restaurant in Ann Arbor where I got a job waiting tables. I also worked the night shift at River Rouge, the big Ford plant, and that was real money. It wasn't so hard to get that job. The factories were looking for people. I had another job too, which paid me the best pay I ever had before I became a lawyer, which was working in construction. During the summer in Ann Arbor, we built the Chrysler Proving Grounds. I worked there a few summers during law school. Those jobs were really high paying because you worked so much overtime, end quote. Think about this story for a moment. The first lesson is that Friedman was willing to work hard, take responsibility for himself, and put himself through school. But the second, perhaps most more important lesson, is that he happened to come along at a time in America when if you were willing to work hard, you could take responsibility for yourself and put yourself through school. Friedman was, at the time, what we would call economically disadvantaged. He was an inner-city kid from the Bronx, neither of whose parents went to Brook or went to college. But look at how easy it was for him to get a good education. He graduated from his public high school in New York at a time when New York City public schools were the envy of the world. His first option, City College, was free, and his second option, the University of Michigan, cost just $450, and the admissions process was casual enough, apparently, that he could try school one day, try one school one day and the other school the next. And how did he get there? He hitchhiked with the money that he made in the summer in his pocket. And when he arrived, he immediately got a series of really good jobs to help pay his way, because the factories were looking for people. And of course they were. They had to feed the needs of the big generation just ahead of those born in the demographic trough of the 1930s, and the big generation of baby boomers coming up behind them. The sense of possibility so necessary for success comes not just from inside us or from our parents. It comes from our time from the particular opportunities that our particular place in history presents us with. For a young would-be lawyer, being born in the early 1930s was magic time, just as being born in 1955 was for a software programmer, or being born in 1835 was for an entrepreneur. Today, Mort Janklo has an office high above Park Avenue filled with gorgeous works of modern art, a du buffet, and a, an Anselm Kiefer. He tells hilarious stories, Quote, my mother had two sisters. One lived to be 99 and the other died at 90. The 99-year-old was a smart woman. She married my uncle Al, who was the chief of sales for Maidenform. Once I said to him, what's the rest of the country like, Uncle Al? And he said, when you leave, kiddo, when you leave New York, every place is Bridgeport. End quote. Okay, kind of funny. He gives the sense that the world is his for the taking. Quote, I've always been a big risk taker. When I built the cable company in the early stages, I was making deals where I would have been bankrupt if I hadn't pulled it off. I had confidence that I could make it work, end quote. Mort Janklow went to New York City public schools when they were at their best. Maurice Janklow went to New York, public, New York City public schools when they were at their most overcrowded. Mort Janklow went to Columbia University Law School because demographic trough babies have their pick of selective schools. Maurice Janklow went to Brooklyn Law School, which was as good as an immigrant child could do in 1919. Mort Janklow sold his cable business for tens of millions of dollars. Maurice Janklow closed titles for $25. Dollars. 
The story of the Janklos tells us that the meteoric rise of Joe Flom could not have happened at just any time. Even the most gifted of lawyers, equipped with the best of family lessons, cannot escape the limitations of their generation. Mort Janklos said, quote, My mother was coherent until the last five or six months of her life, and in her delirium she talked about things that she'd never talked about before. She said she shed tears over her friends dying in the 1918 flu epidemic. That generation, my parents' generation, lived through a lot. They lived through the epidemic that, which took, what, 10% of the world's population, panic in the streets, friends dying, and then the First World War, and then the Depression, and then the Second World War. They didn't have much of a chance. That was a very tough period. My father would have been much more successful in a different kind of world. Section 8. Lesson number three, the garment industry and meaningful work. In 1889, Louis and Regina Borganic boarded an ocean liner in Hamburg bound for America. Louis was from Galicia in what was then Poland. Regina was from a small town in Hungary. They had been married only a few years and had one small child in a second on the way. For the 13-day journey, they slept on straw mattresses on a deck above the engine room, hanging tight to their bunk beds as the ship pitched and rolled. They knew one person in New York, Morganic's sister, Sally, who had immigrated 10 years before. They had enough money to last a few weeks at best. Like so many other immigrants to America in, theirs, in those years, theirs was a leap of faith. Lewis and Regina found a tiny apartment on Eldridge Street on Manhattan's Lower East Side for $8 a month. Lewis then took to the streets looking for work. He saw peddlers and fruit sellers and sidewalks crammed with pushcarts. The noise and activity and energy dwarfed what he had known in the old world. He was first overwhelmed and then invigorated. He went to his sister's fish store on Ludlow Street and, and persuaded her to give him a consignment of herring on credit. He set up shop on the sidewalk with two barrels of fish, hopping back and forth between them and chanting in German. For frying, for bacon, for cooking, good also for eating, herring will do for every meal and for every class. By the end of the week, he had earned $8. By the second week, 13 Those were considerable sums, but Louis and Regina could not see how selling herring on the street would lead to a constructive business. Louis then decided to try being a pushcart peddler. He sold towels and tablecloths without much luck. He switched to notebooks, then bananas, then socks and stockings. Was there really a future in pushcarts? Regina gave birth to a second child, a daughter, and Lewis's urgency grew. He now had four mouths to feed. The answer came to him after five long days of walking up and down the streets of the Lower East Side, just as he was about to give up hope. He was sitting on an overturned box, eating a late lunch of sandwiches Regina had made for him, and realized it was clothes. Everywhere around him, stores were opening. Suits, dresses, overalls, shirts, skirts, blouses, trousers, all made and ready to be worn. Coming from a world where clothing was sewn at home by hand or made to order by tailors, this was a revelation. Quote, to me, the greatest wonder in this was not the mere quantity of garments, although that was a miracle in itself. Borgenich would write years later, after he became a prosperous manufacturer of women's and children's clothing. But the fact that in America, even poor people could save all the dreary, time-consuming labor of making their own clothes simply by going into a store and walking out with what they needed. 
there was a field to go into, a field to thrill to. End quote. Borganic took out a small, small notebook. Everywhere he went, he wrote down what people were wearing and what was for sale. Men's wear, women's wear, children's wear. He wanted to find a novel item, something that people would wear that was not being sold in the stores. For four more days, he walked the streets. On the evening of the final day, as he walked toward home, he saw a half dozen children playing hopscotch. One of the girls was wearing a tiny embroidered apron over the dress, cut low in the front with a tie in the back, and it struck him, suddenly, that in his previous days of relentlessly inventorying the clothing shops of the Lower East Side, he had never seen one of those aprons for sale. He came home and told Regina she had an ancient sewing machine that they had bought on their arrival. The next morning, he went to a dry goods store on Hester Street and bought a hundred yards of gingham and fifty yards of white crossbar. Came back to their tiny apartment and laid the goods out on the dining room table. Regina began to cut the gingham, small sizes for toddlers, larger for small children, until she had forty aprons, and she began to sew. At midnight, she went to bed and Lewis took up where she had left off. At dawn, she rose and began cutting buttonholes and adding buttons. By ten in the morning, the aprons were finished. Lewis gathered them up over his arm and ventured out onto Hester Street, crying children's aprons, girls' aprons, colored ones, ten cents, white ones, fifteen cents, children's aprons, and by one o'clock, all forty were gone. He shouted to Regina, Ma, we've got our business, after running all the way home from Hester Street. Section 9 Jewish immigrants like the Floms and the Bergenics and the Janklos were not like the other immigrants who came to America in the 19th and early 20th centuries. The Irish and the Italian were peasants, tenant farmers from the impoverished countryside of Europe. Not so for the Jewish ones. For centuries in Europe, they had been forbidden to own land, so they clustered in cities and towns, taking up urban trades and professions. 70% of the Eastern Europeans who came through Ellis Island in the 30 years or so before the First World War had some kind of occupational skill. They had owned small groceries or jewelry stores. They had been bookbinders or watchmakers. Overwhelmingly, though, their experience lay in the clothing trade. They were tailors and dressmakers, hat and cap makers, and furriers and tanners. Louis Bergenicht, for example, left the impoverished home of his parents at age 12 to work as a sales clerk in a general store in the Polish town of Berczeko. When the opportunity to came to work in Schnittwarenhandlung, literally the handling of clothes and fabrics or peace goods as they were known, he jumped at it. Quote, in those days, the peace goods man was clothier of the world, he writes, and of the three fundamentals required for life in that simple society, food and shelter were humble. Clothing was the aristocrat. Practitioners of the clothing art, dealers in wonderful cloths from every corner of Europe, traders who visited the centers of industry on their annual buying tours, these were the merchant princes of my youth. Their voices were heard, their weight was felt." Borgenic worked in peace goods for a man named Epstein, then moved on to a store in a in neighboring Jaslo called Brandstatter's. It was there that the young Borganic learned the ins and outs of all the dozens of different varieties of cloth, to the point where he could run his hand over a fabric and tell you the thread count, the name of the manufacturer, and his place of origin. A few years later, Borganic moved to Hungary and met Regina. She had been running a dressmaking business since the age of 16, and together they opened a series of small piece goods store, painstakingly learning the details of small business entrepreneurship. 
Organic did brainstorm that day on the upturned box, then that did not come from nowhere. He was a veteran of Schnittfarenhandlung, and his wife was a seasoned dressmaker. This was their field, and at the same time as the Borgenics set up shop inside their tiny apartment, thousands of other Jewish immigrants were doing the same thing, putting their sewing and dressmaking and tailoring skills to use, to the point where by 1900, control of the garment industry had passed almost entirely into the hands of the Eastern European newcomers. As Borgenics put it, the Jewish folks bit deep into the welcoming land and worked like madmen at whatever they knew. Today, at a time when New York is at the center of an enormous and diversified metropolitan area, it is easy to forget the significance of the set of skills that immigrants like the Borgenics brought to the New World. From the late 19th century through the middle of the 20th century, the garment trade was the largest and most economically vibrant industry in the world. More people worked making clothes in New York than at anything else, and more clothes were manufactured in New York than in any other city in the world. The distinctive buildings that still stand on the lower half of Broadway in Manhattan, from the big 10 and 15 story industrial warehouses in the 20 blocks below Times Square to the cast iron lofts of Soho and Tribeca, were almost all built to house coat makers and hat makers and lingerie manufacturers in huge rooms of men and women hunched over sewing machines. To come to New York City in the 1980s, sorry, 1890s, with a background in dressmaking or sewing or Schnittfarenhandlung was a stroke of extraordinary good fortune. It was like showing up to Silicon Valley in 1986 with tens of thousands of hours of computer programming already under your belt. <clears throat> Quote, there is no doubt that these Jewish immigrants arrived at the perfect time with the perfect skills, says sociologist Steven Steinberg. To exploit that opportunity, you had to have certain virtues, and those immigrants worked hard. They sacrificed. They scrimped and saved and invested wisely. But still, you have to remember that the garment industry in those years was growing by leaps and bounds. The economy was desperate for the skills that they possessed. End quote. Louis and Regina Borgenicht and the thousands of others who came over with them were given a golden opportunity, and so were their children and grandchildren, because the lessons that those garment workers brought home with them in the evenings turned out to be critical for getting ahead in the world. Section 10. The day after Louis and Regina Borgenicht sold out their first lot of 40 aprons, Louis made his way to H.B. Claflin and Company. Claflin was a dry goods commission house, the equivalent of Brandstatter's back in Poland. There, Organic asked for a salesman who spoke German, since his English was almost non-existent. He had in his hand his and Regina's life savings, $12, and with that money, he bought enough cloth to make ten dozen aprons. Day and night, he and Regina cut and sewed. He sold all ten dozen in two days. Back he went to Claflin for another round, and they sold those too. Before long, he and Regina hired another immigrant just off the boat to help with the children so Regina could sew full-time, and then another to serve as apprentice. Louis ventured uptown as far as Harlem, selling to the mothers in the tenements. He rented a, a storefront on Sheriff Street with living quarters in the back. He hired three more and bought sewing machines for each of them. He became known as the Apron Man, and he and Regina were selling aprons as fast as they could make them. Before long, the Borgenics decided to branch out. They started making adult aprons, and then petticoats, and then women's dresses. By January of 1892, the Borgenics had 20 people working for them, mostly Jewish immigrants like themselves. 
They had their own factory on the Lower East Side of Manhattan and a growing list of customers, including a store uptown owned by another Jewish immigrant family, the Bloomingdale Brothers. Keep in mind that the Borgenics had barely been in the country for only three years at this point. They hardly spoke English, and they weren't rich yet by any stroke of the imagination. Whatever profit they made got plowed back into the business, and Borgenics says he only had $200 in the bank. But already, he was in charge of his own destiny. This was the second great advantage of the garment industry. It wasn't just that it was growing by leaps and bounds, it was also explicitly entrepreneurial. Clothes weren't made in a single big factory. Instead, a number of established firms designed patterns and prepared the fabric, and then the complicated stitching and pressing and button attaching were all sent out to small manufacturers or contractors. If a contractor got big enough or ambitious enough, he started designing his own patterns and preparing his own fabric. By 1913, there were approximately 16,000 separate companies in New York City's garment business, just many just like the Borganics shop on Sheriff Street. Quote, the threshold for getting involved in the business was very low. It's basically a business built on the sewing machine, and sewing machines don't cost that much, says Daniel Sawyer, a historian who has written widely on the garment industry. So, you didn't need a lot of capital. At the turn of the 20th century, it was probably $50 to buy a machine or two. All you had to do to be a contractor was to have a couple sewing machines, some irons, and a couple of workers. The profit margins were very low, but you could make some money. End quote. Listen to how Borganic describes his decision to expand beyond aprons. Quote, From my study of the market, I knew that only three men were making children's dresses in 1890. One was an East Side tailor near me, who made only to order, while the other two turned out an expensive product with which I had no desire at all to compete. I wanted to make popular price stuff. Wash dresses, silks, and woolens. It was my goal to produce dresses that the great mass of the people could afford. Dresses that would, from the business angle, sell equally well to both large and small, city and country stores. With Regina's help, she always had excellent taste and judgment. I made up a line of samples. Displaying them to all my old customers and friends, I hammered home every point that these dresses would save mothers endless work, that the materials and sewing were as good and probably better than anything that could be done at home, and the price was right for quick disposal." End quote. On one occasion, Borganic realized that his only chance to undercut bigger firms was to convince the wholesalers to sell cloth to him directly, eliminating the middleman. He went to see Mr. Bingham at Lawrence & Company, a tall, gaunt, white-bearded Yankee with steel-blue eyes. There, were th there the two of them were, the immigrant from rural Poland, his eyes ringed with fatigue, facing off in his halting English against the imperious Yankee. Borganek said he wanted to buy four, 40 cases of cashmere. Bingham had never sold to an individual company, let alone a shoestring operation on Sheriff Street. Bingham thundered, you have a hell of a cheek coming in here and asking me for favors. But he ended up saying yes. What Borgenic was getting in his 18-hour days was a lesson in the modern economy. He was learning market research. He was learning manufacturing. He was learning how to negotiate with imperious Yankees. He was learning how to plug himself into popular culture in order to understand new fashion trends. The Irish and Italian immigrants who came to New York in the same period did not have that advantage. They didn't have a skill specific to the urban economy. 
They went to work as laborers and domestics in construction, jobs where you could show up and work every day for 30 years and never learn the market research and manufacturing and how to navigate the popular culture and how to negotiate with the Yankees who ran that world. Or consider the fate of the Latinos who immigrated to California between 1900 and the end of the 1920s to work in the fields of the big fruit and vegetable growers. Essentially, they simply exchanged the life of a feudal peasant for the life of a feudal peasant in California. The conditions in the garment industry were every bit as bad, Sawyer continues, but as a garment worker, you were closer to the center of the industry. If you are working in a field, you have no clue what's happening to the produce when it gets on the truck. If you are working in a small garment shop, your wages are low and your conditions are terrible and your hours are long, but you can see exactly what the successful people are doing and you can see how you can set up your own job. When Borganic came home at night to his children, he may have been tired and poor and overwhelmed, but he was alive. He was his own boss. He was responsible for his own decisions and direction. His work was complex. It engaged the mind and the imagination. And in his work, there was a relationship between effort and reward. The longer that he and Regina stayed up at night sewing aprons, the more money they made the next day on the street. Those three things, autonomy, complexity, and a connection between effort and reward are, most people agree, the three qualities that work has to have if it is to be satisfying. It is not how much money we make that ultimately, ultimately makes us happy between nine and five. It's whether our work is fulfilling. If I offered you a choice between being an architect for 75 a year and working in a toll booth every day for 100 a year, which would you take? I'm guessing the former because there is complexity, autonomy, and a relationship between effort and reward in doing creative work, and that's worth more to most of us than the money. Work that fulfills these three criteria is meaningful. Being a teacher is meaningful. Being a physician is meaningful. So is being an entrepreneur, and the miracle of the garment industry, as cutthroat and grim as it was, was that it allowed people like the Borganics, just off the boat, to find something meaningful to do as well. Footnote. Just to be clear, to say that garment work was meaningful is not to romanticize it. It was incredibly hard and often miserable labor. The conditions were inhuman. One survey in the, in the 1890s put the average work week at 84 hours, which comes to 12 hours a day. At other times, it was higher. During the busy season, David Von Drell writes in Triangle, The Fire That Changed America, it was not unusual to find workers on stools or broken chairs, bent over their sewing or hot irons from 5 a.m. to 9 p.m., a hundred or more hours a week. Indeed, it was said that during the busy seasons, the grinding hum of sewing machines never entirely ceased on the Lower East Side, day or night. End of footnote. When Louis Borgenick came home after first seeing that child's apron, he danced a jig. He hadn't sold anything yet. He was still penniless and desperate, and he knew that to make something of his idea was going to require years of backbreaking labor. But he was ecstatic because the prospect of those endless years of hard labor did not seem like a burden to him. Bill Gates had that same feeling when he first sat down at the keyboard at Lakeside, and the Beatles didn't recoil in horror when they were told they had to play eight hours a night seven days a week, or eight days a week, as the Beatles might say. They jumped at the chance. Hard work in it is a prison sentence only if it does not have meaning. Once it does, it becomes the kind of thing that makes you grab your wife around the waist and dance a jig. 
The most important consequence of the miracle of the garment industry, though, was what happened to the children growing up in those homes where meaningful work was practiced. Imagine what it must have been like to watch the meteoric rise of Regina and Louis Bergenicht through the eyes of one of their offsprings. They learned the same lesson that little Alex Williams would learn nearly a century later, a lesson crucial to those who wanted to tackle the upper reaches of a profession like law or medicine. If you work hard enough and assert yourself and use your mind and imagination, you can shape the world to your desires. Section 11. In 1982, a sociology graduate student named Luis Farkas went on a visit to a number of nursing homes and residential hotels in New York City and Miami Beach. She was looking for people like the Borganics, or more precisely, the children of people like the Borganics who had come to New York in the great wave of Jewish immigration at the turn of the last century. For each of the people she interviewed, she constructed a family tree, showing what a line of parents and children and grandchildren, and in some cases, great-grandchildren, did for a living. Here is her account of subject number 18. Quote, A Russian tailor artisan comes to America, takes to the needle trade, works in a sweatshop for a small salary, later takes garments to finish at home with the help of his wife and older children. In order to increase his salary, he works through the night. Later, he makes a garment and sells it on New York streets. He accumulates some capital and goes into a business venture with his sons. They open a shop to create men's garments. The Russian tailor and his sons become men's suit manufacturers, supplying several men's stores. The sons and the father become pro prosperous, and the sons' children become educated professionals. Here's another example. It's a tanner who immigrated from Poland in the late 19th century. Farkas's, end quote. Farkas's Jewish family tree goes on for pages, each virtually identical to the one before, until the conclusion becomes inescapable. Jewish doctors and lawyers did not become professionals in spite of their humble origins. They became professionals because of their humble origins. Ted Friedman, the prominent litigator in the 1970s and 1980s, remembers as a child going to concerts with his mother at Carnegie Hall. They were poor and living in the farthest corners of the Bronx. How did they afford tickets? Friedman says, quote, Mary got a quarter. There was a Mary who was a ticket taker, and if you gave Mary a quarter, she would let you stand in the second balcony without a ticket. Carnegie Hall didn't know about it. It was just between you and Mary. It was a bit of a journey, but we would go back once or twice a month, end quote. Footnote. The conventional explanation for Jewish success, of course, is that Jews come from a literate intellectual culture. They are famously the people of the book. And there was surely something to that. But it wasn't just the children of rabbis who went to law school. It was the children of garment workers. And their critical advantage in climbing the professional ladder wasn't the intellectual rigor you get from studying the Talmud. It was the practical intelligence and savvy you get from watching your father, father sell aprons on Hester Street. End quote. Or end of footnote. Friedman's mother was a Russian immigrant. She barely spoke English. But she had gone to work as a seamstress at the age of 15 and had become a prominent garment union organizer. What you learn in that world is that through your own powers of persuasion and initiative, you can take your kids to Carnegie Hall. There is no better lesson for a budding lawyer than that. The garment industry was a boot camp for the professionals. What did Joe Flom's father do? He sewed shoulder pads for women's dresses. 
What did Robert Oppenheimer's father do? He was a garment manufacturer, like Louis Borgenicht. One flight up from Flom's corner office at Skadden and Arps is the office of Barry Garfinkel, who has been at Skadden and Arps nearly as long as Flom, and who for many years headed the firm's litigation department. What did Garfinkel's mother do? She was a milliner. She made hats at home. What did two of Louis and, Reg and Regina's, Re Regina Borgenick's son do? They went to law school, and no less than nine of their grandchildren ended up as doctors and lawyers as well. Here is the most remarkable of Farkas's family trees. It belongs to a Jewish family from Romania who had a small grocery store in the old country and then came to New York and opened another on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. It is the most elegant answer to the question of where all the Joe Floms came from. Section 12 Ten blocks north of the Skadden and Arps headquarters is the Midtown office of Joe Flom's great rival, the law firm generally regarded as the finest in the world. It is headquartered in the prestigious office building known as Black Rock. To get hired there takes a small miracle. Unlike New York's other major law firms, all of which have hundreds of attorneys scattered around the major capitals of the world, it operates only out of that single Manhattan building. It turns down much more business than it accepts. Unlike every one of its competitors, it does not bill by the hour. It simply names a fee. Once, while defending Kmart against a takeover, the firm billed $20 million for two weeks of work. Kmart paid, and happily. If its attorneys do not outsmart, me, outsmart you, they will outwork you. And if they can't outwork you, they'll win through sheer intimidation. There is no firm in the world that has made more money, lawyer for lawyer, over the past two decades. On Joe Flom's wall, next to pictures of Flom with George Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton, there is a picture of him with the rival firm's managing partner. No one rises to the top of the New York legal profession unless he or she is smart and ambitious and hardworking. And clearly, the four men who founded the BlackRock firm fit that description. But we know far more than that, don't we? Success is not a random act. It arises out of a predictable and powerful set of circumstances and opportunities. And at this point, after examining the lives of Bill Joy and Bill Gates, pro hockey players and geniuses, and Joe Flom, the Janklos, and the Borgenics, it shouldn't be hard to figure out where the perfect lawyer comes from. This person will have been born in a demographic trough, so as to have had the best of New York's public schools and the easiest time in the job market. He will be Jewish, of course, and so locked out of the old line downtown law firms on account of his antecedents. This person's parents will have done meaningful work in the garment business, passing on to their children autonomy and complexity and the connection between effort and reward. A good school, although it doesn't have to be a great school, will have to be, have been attended. He need not have been the smartest in class, only smart enough. In fact, we can be even more precise. Just as there is a perfect birth date for the 19th century business tycoon and a perfect birth date for the software tycoon, there is a perfect birth date for a New York jo Jewish lawyer as well. It's 1930, because that would give the lawyer the benefit of a blessedly small generation. It would also make him 40 years of age in 1970 when the revolution in the legal world first began, which translates to a healthy 15-year Hamburg period in the takeover business while the white shoe lawyers lingered, oblivious, over their two martini lunches. If you want to be a great New York lawyer, it is an advantage to be an outsider, and it is an advantage to have parents who did meaningful work, 
and better still, it is an advantage to have been born in the early 1930s. But if you have all three advantages, on top of a good dose of ingenuity and drive, then that's an unstoppable combination. It's like being born a hockey player on January 1st. The BlackRock law firm is Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz. The firm's first partner is Herbert Wachtell. He was born in 1931. He grew up in the Amalgamated Clothing Workers Union housing across from Van Cortlandt Park in the Bronx. His parents were Jewish immigrants from the Ukraine. His father was in the ladies' undergarment business with his brothers on the sixth floor of what is now a fancy loft at Broadway and Spring Street in Soho. He went to New York City public schools in the 1940s, then to New York University, and then to New York University Law School. The second partner was Martin Lipton. He was born in 1931. His father was a manager at a factory. He was a descendant of Jewish immigrants. He attended public schools in Jersey City, then the University of Pennsylvania, then NYU Law School. The third partner was Leonard Rosen. He was born in 1930, grew up poor in the Bronx near Yankee Stadium. His parents were Jewish immigrants from the Ukraine. His father worked in the garment district in Manhattan as a presser. He went to New York City public schools in the 1940s and then to City College in Upper Manhattan and then to New York University Law School. The fourth partner was George Katz. He was born in 1931. He grew up in a one-bedroom, first-floor apartment in the Bronx. His parents were the children of Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe. His father sold insurance. His grandfather, who lived a few blocks away, was a sewer in the garment trade, doing piecework out of his house. He went to New York City public schools in the 1940s, then to City College in Upper Manhattan, and then to New York University Law School. Imagine that we had met any one of these four, fresh out of law school, sitting in the elegant waiting room of Mudge Rose, right next to a blue-eyed Nordic type from the right background. We would probably all have bet on the Nordic type, and we would have been wrong, because the Katzes and the Rosens and the Liptons and the Wachtels and the Floms had something that the Nordic type did not. Their world, their culture and generation and family history gave them the greatest of opportunities. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.